0: Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 36. Isaiah, chapter 36. We'll be reading together in several minutes, not quite yet, but you'll be ready when we get there. Well, this is a long book, is it not? So, where are we? Where are we? Well, in chapters 1 through 12, we met, you'll remember, the God of unapproachable holiness. He met Isaiah in his temple the temple filled with his glory, and he sent Isaiah away with his guilt removed and a message of judgment for those who would mock him and salvation for those who would trust in a child who would be born Emmanuel, a king on David's throne, a righteous king to come. And if God's promises were a bit bold, then in chapters 13 through 27, we learned that the God who makes these promises is himself the God of the world and of history nothing is outside of his jurisdiction he owns it all he will do what he says he will do they need not fear the nations for he sweeps them like a broom and his promises are even wilder than we thought one day Isaiah says Assyria and Egypt the world's superpowers set against God will worship with Jerusalem wow a multinational worshiping community Worshiping the Lord. And if we don't think God is powerful enough to bring those kinds of over-the-top promises about, then this week in chapters 28 through 39, we meet the God of proven strength. Assyria, Egypt, and Jerusalem in these chapters are entangled in a real-life mess of warring opposition. But before this part of the book is over, God's people will witness firsthand the same power from their God in battle that parted the seas and squashed Egypt's army. And the same power that stopped the sun in Joshua's day and threw hail at his enemies to win in battle. This God can be trusted and when this God is trusted, this God wins his battles for his people. It is as easy as trusting, but trusting for humans is not so easy. This is a book about two cities and God will make the Jerusalem that's in ruins on the first side that doesn't trust him into the Jerusalem on the other side of the book that is robed in righteousness that shines brightly and that trusts him and finds its joy in him forever. And our job is to understand how he will do this from this book given the holiness of God and given our sin and then to see that we are safely residents in the right city in the end. But human sin... That question of how sinners can be reconciled to a holy God is a big, big problem. It's not enough to believe that in the end, God's going to have a shining city. There's a thing called heaven. There's a thing called the new creation. We've got to figure out how sinners like us get there. And it's why the Bible's written. It's why we have this book. Well, let me begin with an insight with you into human nature given to us on the page from the series, The Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. Perhaps these words are familiar to you, and if the words aren't familiar, perhaps the insight into human nature is. It will be on display on the pages of our sermon this morning. You mustn't think that even now, Edmund was quite so bad that he actually wanted his brothers and sisters to be turned into stone. He did want Turkish delight, and to be a prince, and later a king and to pay Peter Peter out for calling him a beast. As for that witch, as for what the witch would do with the others, he didn't want her to be particularly nice to them, certainly not to put them on the same level as himself. But he managed to believe, or to pretend to believe, that she wouldn't do anything very bad to them, because, he said to himself, all these people who say nasty things about her are her enemies, and probably half of it isn't true. She was jolly nice to me, anyway, much nicer than they are, I expect she's the rightful queen, really. Anyway, she'll be better than that awful Aslan. At least that was the excuse he made in his own mind for what he was doing. It wasn't a very good excuse, however, for deep down inside him, he really knew that the White Witch was bad and cruel. The Chronicles of Narnia is a children's series, but it is not just for children. It's a human's series, It's written for all of us, parents and kids alike. If you haven't cracked the Chronicles of Narnia, you really should. Do it with your kids if you have them. If you don't, read it still. Edmund wanted to be great. He hated the thought of being treated like a kid. He entrusted himself to a lie. He believed the lies of this witch, which he loved so much. The witch was there for him, and with Turkish delight, his favorite snack. Was the witch really jolly nice? Was Aslan really awful? Did it really matter? Wasn't the lie enough? It's what we wanted. He's doing what we do. Our worst of sins usually have the very best and carefully thought through of rationalizations and reasons, do they not? Do you not have the best reasons for the worst sins? It's because we work really hard at making them work for us, at believing the lie that we love. Surely Adam didn't imagine the Holocaust. No, he imagined himself being like God and that was really enough to buy the serpent's lie. It was delight to the eyes and good for food. Let's take a bite. God said it'll kill me, but serpent says he won't. Perhaps God is hiding something from me anyways, keeping me down. Edmund reminds us of ourselves. Edmund also reminds us of a sketchy king we met two weeks ago named Ahaz, if you'll remember. And reviewing a little bit about what went down with Ahaz will help to set the stage for when we turn to chapter 36 in a few minutes. Ahaz, remember, Jerusalem's king, who was in something of a pickle, murderous and merciless Assyria on one side, hungry for Egypt on the other side of Jerusalem. Surely she would swallow Jerusalem whole and in a bite when it was time to get her prize, Egypt. Ahaz shook like the trees, the text said. Remember Ahaz, the one who had, well, some options. He could form an alliance with other small nations and form an assault against Assyria, but that'd be sort of dumb, certain doom. Or he could trust the Lord. Isaiah promised him in accordance with the word that God had spoken to Moses, that if he entrusted himself to the Lord, that the Lord would fight for him. He was, after all, the Davidic king, the one in whom all of God's promises were now focused like a funnel. God's promise to turn back the curse through his son of Eve and crush the head of the serpent focused in him. God's promise to Abraham were focused in him of a nation, of land, of blessing to the nations. God's promises to Moses were the context for his rule, that he would defeat his enemies and be set high above the nations if he obeys, but that for disobedience he would be besieged, his walls taken down, his people taken and scattered. It's all right there in Deuteronomy 28, an outline for the king's life and leadership. And of course, God's promise to David of a son to sit on his throne forever over an unbreakable kingdom that would never ever end. David, after all, said things like, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh, Lord, save the king. Would would Ahaz say that? Of course, he didn't. Instead, he uh, called up Assyria and said, why don't we uh, hook up? I'll join your team and you leave us alone. Making payments then to Assyria and sending people up there to learn how to worship Assyria's gods, Ahaz made himself a puppet king. And Ahaz made God's people, God, the king of the universe, made God's people a puppet kingdom. How tragic. But we know the story is about more than how sinners go wrong. The story of the Bible is for us to describe us, to diagnose our problem, but also to provide a solution. Thankfully, it is also a story of God's grace to sinners in salvation through a king, a king who will come, who will trust in God and lead us in the same. We'll get to that later, especially next week. But for now, chapter 36. It's a generation later after Ahaz's debacle and compromise. Hezekiah, Ahaz's, king, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah is king. Most of Judah, no surprise, has been gobbled up by Assyria. And Assyria with her army is at the front door of the city of Jerusalem. Literally at the walls with an official out front with a message from Assyria's king to be sent to Hezekiah, Jerusalem's king. Chapter 36 is the record of that message and what transpired. Start with me in verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to part, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it not without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this holy land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink of the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land." a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nation delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilka, Hilkiah, who was over the household and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with the clothes torn and told him the words of the Rebshakeh. <sighs> so what would Hezekiah do here? That is an earful What would Hezekiah do? More fundamentally, who would Hezekiah trust? More fundamentally than that, who in Hezekiah's imagination and mind and heart was bigger and therefore stronger to Hezekiah? Assyria or the Lord? And that's a question for any of us. Where do you turn when everything is on the line? Where do you turn when everything is at stake and you're up against a wall to the limit, when it's all or nothing, when it will cost you everything to be wrong, do you trust God's word? That's saving faith. You see, the great enemy for all of us is the enemy of death. In the face of death, who are you trusting? What would Hezekiah do in the face of certain death? We'll come back to the story in a bit. Here's the outline for this morning. Two solutions, two outcomes, two tests. Be warned that Old Testament history can be a bit um, obscure and difficult to follow at times. It is the story of our salvation. A person can become a Christian without understanding the whole Old Testament story or parts of it like we'll be in today. However, it is for our instruction, it is for our training in righteousness, it is to make us ready for salvation. It does reveal to us the extent of our sin and the extent of God's grace. We can be Christians without getting this. We cannot fully apprehend the great sinners that we are or the great grace that God has shown us in Christ without grasping the story and that's what we're doing this morning. Plenty of it's poetry and we'll read a bunch of it together. Two solutions, two outcomes, two tests. First, two solutions. Chapters 28 through 33. Assyria is a real problem and it requires a real solution. Ahaz had his lame solution. If you don't think God can beat him, join him. But some things have changed since Ahaz was king and for the better. First of all, in the first place, Ahaz is no longer king. His son is. Maybe this is the son who will sit on David's throne and rule in righteousness. Even better, Assyria has a new king. When Assyria would get a new king, a superpower got a new king. Often, smaller nations would revolt, stop paying their dues, and perhaps they'll be left alone. A new king of Assyria might spend the first years of his reign trying to rein things in and figure out where everyone's at and bring things into order. Hezekiah decided to withhold payments to Assyria to reverse what his father had committed to, and that's a good sign. But if you picked it up from Assyria's taunt, that we just read. Hezekiah wasn't trusting Assyria anymore, but he wasn't exactly trusting the Lord either. Verse six of chapter 36, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed on a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. Assyria gets what should be obvious to Hezekiah. After all, would-be genocidal enslavers aren't usually the best kinds of friends, such as Hezekiah's wisdom. Trusting Assyria, it's been said, would be like a mouse asking the hungry cat if they can just go ahead and be on the same team. Why don't we just be in the same team? <laughs> That's not going to work. Uh, trusting Egypt would be like when the mouse realizes this is a problem and he's halfway into the mouth He cries out to another cat to ask if he can be on the same team with that cat. None of these solutions will work. Mice instinctively know not to trust cats. We instinctively know mice should not trust cats. But we are not so wise as sinners, are we, with who we trust and the things that we do? We are like Edmund. We are like Hezekiah. This is how wise Jerusalem's king is on a scale of one to 10, zero. Chapters 28 through 33 are made up of a series of six rebukes, six rebukes. They all start with ah or whoa. If you read through it, you'll see ah and you'll see whoa. There are six of those, six rebukes. The first three parallel the second three. The first three address Israel's sin, Jerusalem's sin in principle, sort of like an X-ray explaining the problem below the surface without specifics. He says they're drunk with their faces down and the table's full of filthy vomit. He says they've made a covenant with death. That's a bad deal. If this isn't scary image, he says that God is tilling the field of his people like a farmer, yikes. And why in chapter 29? Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Ah, you who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed should say to the one who formed it, he has no understanding. That was the first, that's what the first three rebukes sound like, focused on what's under the surface. The second three rebukes get to concrete specifics of their sins and decisions. Turn with me to chapter 31. We're gonna show up and touch down in this section on just one of these rebukes at length, the fifth rebuke for a close up of Israel's sin. Chapter 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Verse three, the Egyptians are man and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. You cannot be in two places at one time. You cannot go left and right at the same time. You cannot trust Egypt and the Lord at the same time. You either trust the Lord in whole or you don't trust him at all. There are only two solutions to the problem of Assyria, which is a real problem. It's man or it's God. Ahaz, and now Hezekiah, has thrown in with man. And in the economy of salvation, you always get who you trust. So no surprise, look at verse three. Here comes Assyria. Assyria here is pictured as a lion. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Assyria is the lion, but the Lord sends the lion. The Lord here is actually the lion coming down to fight. And he is not, he is not afraid as he hovers over his prey of the shouts of the Egyptian shepherds. That's the Egyptians in this little ditty. The shepherds, they're shouting and hollering and the lion is not afraid. God is not afraid. He is over his prey, his people and judgment. But that's never the end of the story and as abrupt as Isaiah always is, you have to watch carefully for this. We have a radical turn to hope in the space of a verse. In one verse, he's the lion hovering over his prey, bringing judgment and chastisement through the nation of Assyria. In the next verse, he's birds. Look at verse five. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Now, I'm not sure how birds figure into this as a a protecting force um, against an enemy. But we get the point. God is in, under, around, through, and over the whole operation. He is sending Assyria to judge his people and he will defend his people against Assyria so that they are not utterly destroyed. To use an image from earlier in the book, he will take them down all the way to a stump, but there will be life left, and a shoot will spring out from that stump. A king will come from David's line, and there will be life. And so he calls them to turn, verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man and a sword not of man shall devour him. A sword, a sword not of man shall devour him. Assyria will fall by a sword but not a man's sword. Remember that. It's a picture here of kind of an 11th hour deliverance when Israel will turn and Assyria will fall in a miraculous way. Jerusalem Jerusalem is rescued by the Lord and it's more than a rescue but a total transformation of the city from injustice to justice, from unrighteousness to righteousness. And watch Isaiah here. Look into the future. 32 verse one. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Listen for those words. Verse 15, The spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes like a fruitful field. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. They have suppressed the truth of God, even his word to them in their unrighteousness. Jerusalem has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and the glory of God for the glory of man. God to them is small, to Hezekiah is small and Assyria has been big. Egypt has been their safety. We said earlier that Jerusalem was in something of a pickle, but really, in light of Isaiah's preaching, it's nothing of a pickle at all. It's not something of a pickle, it's nothing of a pickle. It is no pickle to have to choose between the God of heaven and man when you have God's promises. The real problem will become clear to them as the sermon today unfolds and to us. That's 28 through 33, a contrast between two solutions Who will Hezekiah and the people of God trust? Now, two outcomes, chapters 34 through 35. He's always hinting at where everything's going, the two futures. And here, it's a a kind of a climax to the section and a far, far future vision of ultimate judgment and final salvation. And let me say two things before we read the better parts of these two chapters Together. It's beautiful poetry. First, if it seems like Isaiah abruptly moves from the circumstances on the ground around him to what's happening below the surface to the far future end of things, he actually is. It might seem like he's the guy you shouldn't have given the camera to at the wedding. It's making you dizzy. It's all over the place. So just realize that's that what he's doing, he's actually doing that on purpose. It's, this is not like a New Testament letter. He is purposefully not focusing just on what's around him precisely because he is not focused just on what's around him. He looks around at specific events, and then he X-rays, and then he's out at the future, and he's moving around like a bumblebee on flowers on th- th- these perspectives all the time. He puts on a different lens and he zooms way out in these chapters now. What he was in the middle of, you see, was just too much to bear without the end of history. The people needed the end of history for warning and for hope and we need the end of history. What you are in the middle of may feel like just too much to bear and it may be that you need a vision of the end of history where it all goes. It probably is too much to bear without it. So pay attention to the end and take Isaiah's lead in setting your mind on where everything goes and on the one who owns it all. Maybe your moments and your days and your weeks would be punctuated by reflection upon heaven for it was for Isaiah and we need it the same. And so we come to chapter 34, a picture of final judgment. And folks, what we read here is nothing less than the reversal of creation, or we could say the intensification of God's curse on the creation for sin. Sometimes it's better just to read poetry than explain it. We're gonna do some of that. Chapter 34, verse one. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter, their slain shall be cast out, and their stench of their corpses shall rise, the mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. For the Lord verse eight, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, and the streams of Edom that sh- shall be turned to pitch and her soil to sulphur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Verse 13, thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortress. And so we have a picture of hell. And this is serious, folks. If this is God's word, this is really really serious it is the preacher's temptation and your temptation to gloss over this stuff so hear me now in the end if you and i are not for god we are against him and if we in the end are against god then god will be against us forever that is how it works and maybe you hear this and think well this is the old testament the judgment side of the bible Brace yourself for the book of Revelation. You might recognize some of this language. Listen from Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, John says, in his symbolic vision, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. Full, The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. From Revelation 14, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is God's solution to evil. Where is God when the worst of things happen in our world and we throw our hands up? Our justice system doesn't fix these things. It doesn't make things right. It holds us back from trying to make them right ourselves. It's proximate justice. In this world, all of our technology and education and science has only made our killing more efficient and more cruel and more creative. Humans have a problem way, way down. God has a vision of a future where everything is right and it won't include those of us who are on the wrong side of right. God will put an end to evil one day. Thankfully, there is another outcome available to us, though. Thankfully, there is a chapter 35. Chapter 34 and 35 sit like this in contrast. 34 is never the end of the story. And it is as wonderful as 34 was horrible. If 34 was a reversal of creation, an intensification of God's curse on creation, then 35 is the picture of a day when the curse is reversed, And creation is intensified. Listen to these images of transformation. Listen for the verbs of transformation. Watch this in your mind. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then all the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion will be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing shall flee away. As the New Testament is not just about grace, so the Old Testament is not just about judgment but is itself laced with grace. Sight where there was none, singing where there was none, streams where there were no water, a picture of heaven. In the near term, God's people's return from Babylon, which we'll learn about later. Isaiah can't not talk about how great a salvation is coming. His hearers need it and we need it. If you have never turned to God, you need a vision of the future where God makes all things right And that's good for some and that's bad for others. If you have turned to God, you need this vision to hold on to him in the midst of difficulty. And if this is true, then you must turn and you must hold on. And if this word is true, then you certainly can. If it is dark now and you are in Christ, it will not always be dark. If you are depressed now and you are in Christ, you will not always know this darkness of soul that haunts you. If you are lonely now and you are in Christ, you will not always be lonely. But if things are bright for you now and you are not in Christ, then they will not always be bright. And if they're dark, they will get worse. The question is how do people who deserve the first outcome find themselves enjoying the second? How do people who belong to the first city, which is in ruins in the end of the day, find themselves in the city of righteousness who are not themselves righteous? And that's the question the Bible asks. That's the tension of the Bible in the Old Testament and we're right in the middle of it in Isaiah. So to jump out of the story for a minute, the answer is on a cross where Jesus Christ hangs and dies in the place of sinners. The lamb whose presence is judgment. For some that we read about in Revelation, later in the book of Revelation, there'll be, others will be seated around him at a feast, the marriage supper of the lamb, enjoying him in union with him forever. Not to give away too much of next week's sermon, but the image of the lamb has its roots in Isaiah in part as well. A lamb is actually how God will defeat with great strength his greatest and our greatest enemy, the enemy of death. Hide yourself in him. Attach yourself to him. It's Jesus. In the gospel of Matthew in chapter 11, John wrote from prison to the disciples, is this the Christ speaking of Jesus? And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus on the ground in the first century is walking around proclaiming and evidencing that everything that Isaiah promised is coming to fulfillment in his ministry. It has begun. It is working itself out through us and it will be completed one day in the new creation. Jesus is the coming king. Jesus is the lamb one day who will punish those who reject him but who will seat those of us who trust him around his table, not on account of our good works but on account of his if we'll attach ourselves to him. Trust Christ. That answer though for the hearer and the reader in Isaiah's time is not precisely as clear. The prophets, Peter tells us, searched and inquired carefully to understand how the things they prophesied would work out and at this point there are four things that we know in reading the Bible five things one sinners can't be with a holy God and we're sinners and God's a holy God two God makes promises to save sinners and he promises to keep them third the blessing of the fulfillment of these promises will come about when his people entrust themselves to him especially the king fourth Every time we look at the king and God's people in the Old Testament, we're left wanting and usually really wanting. And fifth, God's promises get more and more lavish, it seems, in inverse proportion to how hopeless Israel's king performs. I mean, really, Isaiah's making these incredible promises and yet when you look at the situation, there's, you have no idea how this is gonna work itself out. No idea. Isaiah preaches and writes in the middle of this tension How is it going to work out? How can sinners be made right with a holy God? Better than any book of the Bible, better than any book of the Old Testament, Isaiah will actually answer it for us next week. Maybe Hezekiah will turn this around. That's where we're at in the story. Maybe he'll turn it around. Maybe he's the child that will save his people. We've considered two solutions, two outcomes, and now two tests, two tests. We began by reading from uh, chapter 36 and we'll pick up where we left off in chapter 37 now. So turn there. You guys remember the taunt from Assyria's official at the gate? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? In other words, everywhere we go, we destroy people. I mean, what's, what's your God compared to theirs? Come on. Team up, I'll give you some horses. This guy is bold and he's pretty sure he's right. But does Hezekiah think he's right? Is Hezekiah buying it? Is Hezekiah intimidated? There's some back and forth, but he ends with a prayer and it's wonderful. Verse 16 of chapter 37. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you are alone, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed." So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all of the the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah got it right. He got it way right. On a scale of one to 10, he gets a 10. On his knees, pleading with the Lord for deliverance on account of God's promise that he'll do just that if he entrusts himself to him. This is where God brings us in our trials and perhaps especially the trials we bring upon ourselves because of our sin. If you're in the middle of a mess that you've made, uh, don't wait until it's cleaned up to come to God. Part of the reason he's allowed things to unfold as they have is precisely so that you'll hit the floor and you'll plead with him for help and you'll entrust yourself to Christ and acknowledge your creatureliness and need. What's God's reply to Hezekiah? Verse 32, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just as he promised there would be men left. Verse 34, about Assyria, by the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And now, where all of this preaching that Isaiah has been doing about God's purposes, we have some visuals. Verse 36, here's how it goes down. Remember that 11th hour deliverance we talked about? And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down, how many? 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. Overnight, God fought and ended it by a sword, not of man, the angel of the Lord. Just as he took the walls down at Jericho, just as he stopped the sun, just as he threw the hail, just as he defeated many armies before when Israel entrusted themselves to God. So right here reminds me of Indiana Jones at that part where... Harrison Ford meets that giant chasm. Do you remember this? And he does this. Boom! And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a path there. I probably would have done this. Right? Same thing. This is, this is saving faith. It banks everything on God. It holds nothing back. It doesn't share its trust with anyone else. He pled with the Lord, his only hope, and the Lord saved, and this is how he saved. A pile of dead bodies, 185,000 high, and it smells, and it smells like God's victory, and it smells like God's faithfulness, and it smells like salvation. It smells like salvation from death. An 11th hour victory. What's interesting is that the extra-biblical records we have show that Sennacherib came down, and there's something of a boast in uh, and having Jerusalem being paying dues to him and all this, but there's, there's, no, there's not a record of him going down to take Egypt at the time, which was his prize and a long sought after prize and no real explanation for why he wouldn't have except maybe what the Bible says, that 185,000 of his guys ended up dead overnight. Ugh, you're not gonna write that down in your history. You're gonna say, uh, took a pass on Egypt. So much for Assyria's gods, Right? He rubs it in, verse 38. He was at, uh, after Sennacherib went back, and he was worshiping in the house of Nis- Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and Sherezer, the sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esradon his son, reigned in his palace. So here is the picture of the Assyrian king who taunted Hezekiah about the Lord, worshiping his little god, right, and he dies. The God can't protect him even from his own sons. It's so perfect you would think it's the end of the story, but before this section of Isaiah's book closes out, before the curtain is drawn, there's one more short scene, one more short scene in the form of a flashback, an out of sequence event. We get taken back to a time earlier in Hezekiah's rule He's sick, he's on his deathbed. He prays to the Lord. The Lord answers his prayer, extends his life and promises him victory over Assyria. Which means it was sort of especially stupid for him ever to trust Egypt. But it sort of makes sense as to why he hung on and trusted the Lord eventually in the last hour. But we've moved on. Hezekiah recovered and when he did, he got a visit from some envoys from Babylon. Some men from Babylon heard he was good doing better, came to visit him, gave him a letter. Hezekiah, it says, read the letter. He welcomed them gladly. And then he proceeded to do something incredibly stupid. 39 verse two. What did he do? He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. You're not supposed to do that with the enemy. Hezekiah just lost his cape. What an incredible victory over the Assyrians. What an incredible prayer. Hezekiah will not be their savior. With this flashback, we see who he really is. He's a man. We don't know what was in that letter. We don't know exactly why he showed them around. Maybe he was flattered from the attention from the big dogs in town. Maybe he was intimidated. Maybe the letter represented some type of alliance that he was attracted to. Whatever the case may have been, it doesn't really matter because we're not told. What matters is what he did after he read the letter. This would be like the president taking delegates from a foreign enemy into the heart of the Pentagon at night and showing them plans for battle and the records of our military assets. There is nothing stupider, there is nothing weaker. There's no, there no greater expression of a lack of confidence in your God for Hezekiah. And so Isaiah opens his mouth and the news is not good. Verse six, behold the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Go figure, nothing shall be left says the Lord and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And what's Hezekiah's response? Verse eight, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What did he mean by that? Was he accepting God's verdict? We're told what he was thinking, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. In other words, So my children and their grandchildren will be hauled off to Babylon for what I've done. But I'll be okay. (laughs) You see, this is a hundred years away. He'll be all right. C.S. Lewis was making a point in the portrayal of Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he makes it elsewhere more explicitly when he writes this. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. You see, Assyria was a problem. In Babylon 100 years later would be a bigger problem. God's people would be taken from their land and their city and they would be exiled to Babylon. In fact, chapter 40, which we'll pick up next week, that'll be the audience. Isaiah will be writing for an audience 100 years out with words to them of comfort in God's promises, which are still sure. Assyria was a problem, Babylon will be worse, but these nations are nothing compared to the problem inside Jerusalem's walls. And that's why Isaiah has placed this out of sequence flashback, this out of sequence part of the story right at the end before the curtain closes. The Davidic house has failed. They'll need to look for hope in another king. Where will he come from? What will he be like? And how will he solve this problem of sin in the heart of, it seems, every human and perhaps especially Israel's kings. God is good to make promises and he is strong to fulfill every one. Look at the pile of bodies outside Jerusalem's walls. He will save, he will do it through his king. Hezekiah is not that king, but whoever this king is, a son, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, he will have to deal with sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an always good and hard word. We are put in our place by the story of these kings of Ahaz and of Hezekiah. We ourselves. Don't believe you're good, as good as you are. You are so often small to us. Other things are big. We trade your glory for the glory of created things. We exchange the truth of a God for a lie because we love the lie. And we talk ourselves into believing that we're right. But Father, when it comes to death, we had better be right. We had better have this right, for we will all face it. It is our greatest enemy and there is only one solution to this enemy and it is Jesus Christ. May each of us be found trusting him, trusting a lamb on a cross who is now seated on his throne and whom we will worship one day with men and women from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.